Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church Podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. For his college application essay for New York University, Hugh Gallagher answered question 3A in this way. He said, in order for the admission staff of our college to get to know you, the applicant better, we ask that you answer the following question. Are there any significant experiences you have had or accomplishments you have realized that have helped you define you as a person? And so this was his response. He said, I am a dynamic figure, often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I have been known to remodel train stations on my lunch breaks, making them more efficient in the area of heat retention. I write award-winning operas. I manage time efficiently. Occasionally, I tread water for three days in a row. I cook 30-minute brownies in 20 minutes. I'm an expert in Stuco, a veteran in love, an outlaw in Peru. I play bluegrass cello. I was scouted by the Mets. I'm the subject of numerous documentaries. When I'm bored, I build large suspension bridges in my yard. I'm an abstract artist, a concrete analyst, a ruthless bookie. I don't perspire. Children trust me. (laughs) I hurl tennis rackets at small moving objects with deadly accuracy. I once led Paradise Lost, Moby Dick, and David Copperfield in one day and still had time to refurbish an entire dining room that evening. (laughs) I know the (coughs) exact, excuse me, (coughs) I know the exact location of every food item in the supermarket. I sleep once a week, and when I do sleep, I sleep in a chair. While on vacation in Canada, I successfully negotiated with a group of terrorists who had seized a small bakery. The laws of physics do not apply to me. I balance, I weave, I dodge, I frolic, and my bills are all paid for. I have won bullfights in San Juan, cliff diving competitions in Sri Lanka, and spelling bees at the Kremlin. I have played Hamlet, I have performed open heart surgery, and I've spoken with Elvis but I have not yet gone to college. <laughs> so we, we laugh at that essay for a number of reasons. One, for many of us, maybe we've had to write an essay or a cover letter for something in our life or for a job and a resume cover left it. And we, we laugh at that because such as unreserved or exaggerated self-promotion is pretty funny. But we are reminded that there is nothing funny about prideful ambition in those who seek to follow Jesus Christ. In fact, there is no self-exaggeration about the cost of following Jesus Christ. And today is Palm Sunday, the church in the calendar year. This is the day, the Sunday before Easter, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. It tells of this story into Jerusalem. This is what this Sunday represents. Jesus is last week as he enters Jerusalem. And many of us have these pictures of Jesus and people waving the palm branches and waving them up and down as he made his way into Jerusalem and have that picture But as significant as that moment is, very significant moment in time for his ministry and for the the life of the church even, is that significant moment is the events that surround that moment, the events that make up that into Palm Sunday. You see, when we follow Jesus, we follow all the events, every aspect of following him. And when we trace the events leading up to that story, there's a few accounts that have really shaped my life over the years, and I pray that they would shape yours as well. And as we walk into this, walk into Holy Week, um, we walk toward Easter. I want to zero in on those events that help shape this moment in time when Jesus walked into Jerusalem. 
with all the palm branches and on all these events that lead up to this moment that shaped the last week of Jesus's life. And we learn about three main things, kind of three key relationships we learn about. We learn about Jesus himself, we learn about the relationships around us, and we also learn about the world around us. Three areas in which we learn about. We learn about the person of Jesus in this account, and we can learn about the relationships around us in this account as well, and then the world at large. So to kind of help you and help us think through Palm Sunday, um, help maybe bring along the text a little bit, um, this kind of, I want to call this a big picture. If you know this, I kind of try to explain what's going on in the Palm Sunday account and uh, quite the buzz that's happening here in Jerusalem as well. So we are in Mark chapter 11. If you want to go there, you can put your finger there. Page 717 of the Bible in front of you, Mark 11. Um, and, but first, Palm Sunday is everything victorious and significant and worthwhile, parades and cheering as Jesus makes his final lap into Jerusalem after a three-year earthly ministry journey. He is about 33 years old at the time. He's kind of a Jesus being a jack-of-all-trades, the son of God. He was a, a stone welder, a carpenter, all those things, and uh, he had caused quite a stir across his ministry and caused quite a stir for good caused quite a stir amongst the people in his ministry. And it's the last week of his life. And it's the last week. It's Passover week. The stage is set. The people line the streets. Jerusalem's population, every Passover season, went from about 40,000 to 200,000 people. I mean, people were buzzing, traveled there, anticipation. There was a lot of this. And a few days ago, we learned from John's account that there's a guy named Lazarus that gets raised from the dead. And he was really dead. And God raised him from the dead. And they've got their palm branches and hands and everything. And, and they've got this in hand like every other king and formal king that's been marched in before. They've got this. And this is the processional that kind of goes down uh, into Jerusalem. And they do the celebratory praise. The noise is deafening of that day. The crowd chants Hosanna. The children get on top of their parents' shoulders, just wanting to peer over the people to see a glimpse into what's happening on the street. And all the while, the backdrop of the religious leaders of the day is that they've got a hit list in mind. They wanted Lazarus dead, and they want Jesus dead. And so all of this mixed, mixed up in this kind of this Political power keg and Jewish nationalism is on full display for this week. And Jesus is in the thick of it all. And he comes into Jerusalem. And palms wave the streets and people are enthusiastic. The crowds, people are hungry. There's a buzz in the city. And the Passover is on. And what I've read, this is uh, one, of the few, one of the books that has really shaped what has really helped me with the Passover week is there's a book that's called, it's by Marcus Borg and John Cross, and it's called The Last Week, and it gives us insight into what happened that last week, about 30 AD. Scholars tell us that actually, well documented at the time of Passover, and in a show of force, that the Romans would have wanted to show their arms as well. And there would actually would have been two processionals that would have came in on Passover. There actually would have been one for Pontius Pilate and one for Jesus. And the Bible only records Jesus, obviously, because he is the son of God. And the Bible's recording this about Jesus. It's a show of power. This would have happened at the time of Passover. The Romans would have done this. It um, would have come in and they would have tried to show themselves and trying to show themselves of their power. No shouts of Hosanna, but the clicking of the hooves of horses, a show of power for the Romans. And armor would line those two processions on Palm Sunday. And Pilate at the time would have lived by the sea on the expensive coasts of Caesarea. 
He was the appointed governor of Judea, living on Caesarea, and he would have been tasked to come into Jerusalem to help keep the peace. And this is like, it's a, it's a time, there's a buzz, there's a city, and things are happening, the palm branches are waving. You see, the Jews wanted nothing to do with the Romans at this particular time. The Jews wanted everything they could possibly do to overthrow the Romans, and the division was deep. And so Pilate makes this 60-mile journey from Caesarea to Jerusalem, and these two processionals, very different ways of doing things, one of power and one of humility, these two journeys. Pilate makes a 60-mile journey from Jerusalem to remind them that Rome was their master. It's a power play and a game of chess, so to speak. So let's kind of coordinate the events in such a way. And Pilate's, the Romans are thinking this, that they know and they remind ourselves like who we are as Romans. So let's go in the backdrop of this. We're going to go to Mark, Mark's account. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are Gospels. They are telling about the story of Jesus, and all four of them tell us about the triumphal entry. And we're going to go to Mark's account, Mark 11. So kind of to highlight this is Jesus has, all across his ministry, has been making his way. And Mark and Luke really tell us this that Jesus has made his way to Jerusalem. He had his sights set on Jerusalem across his ministry, and on the way to Jerusalem highlights the major trajectory of this gospel, of Mark's gospel. And it highlights the collision between Caesar and King Jesus and much of the religious center of the day. You see, even like six out of the 16 chapters of Mark, much of what the gospels are written uh, depicts the last week of Jesus' life. Because so much happened and so much things took place. So chapters 6 to 6, six of, six of the 16 chapters are set in Jerusalem. And it highlights the major theme across this gospel. This is Mark's purpose in chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is Mark's purpose. He unveils the purpose of following Jesus in the moments that we better understand Jesus. And we better understand ourselves and the world around us. We can understand who Jesus is. We better understand our world, we better understand relationships around us, and we better understand ourselves as well. And Jesus and his followers travel, they travel about 100 miles from Galilee to Jerusalem. You can imagine in those days there's no cars, so you can imagine what that would have been like. And Jesus' entry into Palm Sunday, into Jerusalem on this day, is about what it means to follow Jesus and to be a disciple. One author says it like this, following Jesus means following him on the way, and that way leads to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is a place of death and resurrection. Let's go there. Mark 1, 11, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 11 together. Um, if you don't have a home church, make sure you find a church uh, that preaches and teaches the scriptures faithfully and uh, that does so uh, with intentionality, and so we pray that you'd find one. Uh, we do preach the Bible here. Um, we'd love to have you here at our church. So uh, Mark 11, verse 1 says this. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and people let them go. When they had brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches that had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, 
Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So if, imagine with me if you're there. Just kind of go there for a minute. If you're, if you're at this scene, imagine with me if you're there. Can you hear the sound of this procession and even Pilate's procession? Pilate's military procession would have been a showmanship of the Roman government. It was the standard practice for the Roman governors to come in and to be at these kind of festivals, especially at Passover. And he describes, this author describes what this moment would have been like in detail. That procession would have been a, a visual of imperial power. Cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, sun glinting metal and gold around it, the marching of feet, the clinking of bridles, the beating of drums, the swirling of dust, the, the sight of the eyes of the onlookers. Some curious, some were awed, some resentful. In that day, Pilate was deemed Lord. In fact, he was deemed Lord and Savior of that day, and the one who would bring peace on earth. And in fact, many saw his death to ascend to heaven to take his permanent place among the gods. Yet for Jesus, it's the one true king riding into Jerusalem, not attempting to take power and control like the Romans. And notice the word Hosanna. That word actually means God saves. God saves. This king would save people from their sins, which is our greatest need, church. Greatest need is to save ourselves from our sins. The absolute greatest act that anyone could ever do or will ever do is someone saving us from our sin, our dead state, and having a humble king, not on the back of a war horse, but on the back of a donkey. Jesus's vision for the kingdom life and for the kingdom is strength through what this last week of his life was going to look like would involve a very different view of what Pilate would call strength and what the Romans would call strength. And his life demands that if our lives, that if we follow Jesus, we look the same as Jesus. We must follow the same path. We follow the same trajectory as Jesus did. We get Jesus' own words in Mark 10, verse 32 of what's going to happen. It says, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be what? Delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will what? Mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. And as things draw closer, Jesus begins to tell his disciples that this is the death that I'm going to go through. This is the death that I'm going to come to, and this is the death that I'm going to consider, and this is the death that's going to happen for me. And Jesus says this along the Jerusalem way, and is about to consider this. And so if we have that in mind, in the back of our head, this is kind of the events that surround this Passover story. We're going to go to verse 35. It says this, Mark 10, verse 35, the story just, the story, two stories before the uh, triumphal entry, the request of James and John. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. James and John are disciples of Jesus. They are uh, one of the few that are the closest to him. So what an audacious request. Jesus says, I'm going to die. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be mocked. 
And then all of a sudden these disciples say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What a kind of an audacious request for the disciples to ask this at this point. Verse 36, <coughs> excuse me. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other one at your left in your what? Glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Like Jesus is saying, okay, yeah, you really don't know what you're asking when you say this. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong for those who are for whom they have been prepared. Then the ten heard about this. They became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that these who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and to their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your what? Servant. And whoever becomes first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to what? Be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this story happens before this account of Jesus entering in Jerusalem. And notice that the disciples that are Peter, James, and John, kind of the three of the inner circle of Jesus, the closest to him. Notice where their minds are at this point. The Son of Man is going to be handed over and be flogged and be spit on, and their, their mind is on kingship. Their minds are at a totally different place. And they're looking as to where they're going to be seated next to Jesus. Where can I have find a seat? Where can I be next to you, Jesus? And Jesus has a very different kind of way, a countercultural way of this line of thinking. It shows us a little bit about ourselves as disciples. It shows how easily we forget what the call to follow Jesus is all about. Chuck Swindoll says this, to sit on the Lord's right and left referred to the ranks of a second and third command of the coming kingdom. When Jesus prepared himself for rejection, humiliation, suffering, torture, and death, his closest companions jockeyed for positions of power in his imminent administration as king of Israel. The glory they imagined that Jesus being feeded with a ticker tape parade and wearing purple and gold. The disciples hadn't heard anything he said, so they didn't have a clue about the future that they had faced. And it sometimes reveals to us where our hearts lie in all this. You see, in the Garden of Eden, God gave us everything at the beginning of time. When we fell, when man, and when we fell in the Garden of Eden, we had everything. And we had life with God. And God said there was one thing that they could not do. We were tempted to eat from the tree and tempted to do the thing that we were not allowed to do. God had placed this boundary around everything, around, around you cannot eat from this tree. And God had placed boundaries around that. And we thought that life was just going to be better with crossing that line and crossing into the life that, the life that God had intended. And we thought life was better on our own terms rather than what God had said. And the serpent says in Genesis 3, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when you're reading through Genesis, and when you read that account, and you read through like mankind fell, and fell into sin, it's like, oh, you know, come on, you know. <laughs> they had everything they wanted and desired, in a beautiful garden, and life with God, everything perfect, and they bit the fruit that was forbidden. And here we find in this instance a case of Jesus' two of his closest disciples, James and John. Peter was also in that inner circle. 
and they pull a stunt and a political maneuver that's as old as politics, politics itself. I can talk today. Politics it's, itself is office-seeking. They wanted to know, where can I be placed next to your kingdom? They're not, they notice the question that they're asking. When Jesus says, I'm going to die, they're thinking about, what place can I sit next to you in your kingdom? It's like, and as Jesus ends this conversation about his impeding death, and he's preparing for rejection and suffering and humiliation, the worst way possible, his closest followers are jockeying for positions of power. What does that show us? Well, for those hearers in the land of the Bible, if you're hearing this, and that those of you put your shoes on in that day, in Jesus' day, if you're hearing this, there were some uncertain days for the Roman Empire. And if you're, you're, kind of, if you're a follower of Jesus in that day, and if you're following Jesus and you're hearing this and you've got the Roman Empire barreling down, they probably would have been looking at each other like, suffer and die, and this, is, this doesn't make a lot of sense, and what's going to happen to us and Jesus? What's going to happen to you? Because many people thought that the Messiah would come and they would overthrow, and they overthrow the Roman government. Jesus flips that on its head. I mean, just the radical nature of this when many of them thought the messiah would come and overthrow the romans it's jesus that says no actually the way of the cross is a downward mobility not upward it's not looking for people to reach the top it's not about status seekers it's about how christ may make himself known it's about radical humility radical service it's about serving behind the scenes when no one's looking it's when getting our hands dirty when no one else wants to it's not about titles or positions in the kingdom of God. It's about serving where and where it's needed and having no recognition for it. Donald English says it like this, it may amaze us that the disciples could be so slow to grasp what it was all about. Jesus' teaching in these verses shows discipleship as a self-denying, self-risking, and self-giving part of lowly service for the redemption of the world. Sometimes we kind of like, we want to, in, in, in the kingdom of God, it's not about climbing the corporate ladder or finding more and more positions that are higher and higher. It's about selflessly submitting ourselves to King Jesus. And that first begins with our heart. And that first begins with our heart and soul and submitting ourselves to the fact that, you know what, God, I cannot do this life on my own. I cannot go through this. I am broken. I am a sinner. I need you. And that's where it starts. Notice the next conversation that follows this. And and, and I'll say this to you, like sometimes we're not as crass as those disciples in this point of like jockeying for position in the kingdom. But by much more subtle behavior, we oftentimes show how little we grasp of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, of a crucified Lord who died on the cross and gave his life as a ransom for many. The next conversation goes like this. It says in verse 46, then they came to Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have what? Mercy on me. And notice what happens. Watch this crowd here. Many, can you imagine sort of the disappointment here? But many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. Can you imagine that? You're a blind beggar. But he shouted all the more. He said, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. 
So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Notice this question, the same question that James and John asked in verse 36. Bartimaeus asks it. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, Jesus said. You're what? Faith has healed you. Immediately he received his, his sight and followed Jesus along the road. James and John, Bartimaeus, into Jerusalem for the Passover, into Jerusalem on the donkey. What do we learn? You see, when Jesus calls, the response is always to come to him. Jesus invites Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus is actually um, son of honor, is actually his actual name that actually means something in the Bible, son of honor. And the crowd looks on. And Jesus invites Bart. They're trying to rebuke him. They're like, dude, like, be quiet. We've seen you on this roadside. Like, you've been doing that thing around this road. Like, we don't want to hear it. And Jesus, just a few moments ago, they're now speechless. They're now looking at one another in disbelief. Bart finds enough, enough like, to jump up and onto his feet and just go toward Jesus. And he can't even probably fully see Jesus. In fact, the, the, the Jesus and the crowds are like fuzzy images at this point, bright white spots to the eyes of Bart. He can only see enough to come close to Jesus. Notice that question. What do you want me to do for you? I imagine James and John, we're told that the, the disciples, as they came to Jericho, the disciples, together with a large crowd, they're there. Can you imagine James and John, who just had this conversation with Jesus, who are standing by, who are listening in, have their ear and eyes bent toward this? Can you imagine that? Befuzzled look on their faces, only to be reminded of that same question that they had just asked him a short time ago. Maybe some feelings of bitterness and resentment. I mean, why would Jesus, a rabbi, why would he ask this to a blind beggar? I mean, wh why would Jesus ask this to Bart? Why, why would this, why, what honor does this person have? And Bart responds to this question with a deep need. He says, I want to see. He doesn't ask for more money. He asks for a very deep need. He doesn't ask for a position with his disciples doesn't ask for a title. He says, I want to see. He doesn't ask for all, he doesn't ask for Jesus to shoot down all those who have ridiculed him along the road, to be slandered, to be cast out. Bartimaeus asks Jesus for sight. And Jesus says, go, your faith has healed you. Jesus meets our deepest need, not our ego need. It was a question of deservedness or status for James and John. Jesus tears down all of that sense of entitlement. Lord, I mean, think of like James and John. They followed them religiously, and they're here with you. And Bart hasn't done that. Bart's just been on the side of the road. And Bart's been the one that people have probably walked past a lot during that period of time. In a society that was based around honor and your class and who your father was, the disciples are in a dispute as to who was the greatest among them. There was an arms race between which disciple would be the best. <coughs> and following such a rabbi and teacher like Jesus, who healed the blind and taught with authority, would inevitably lead his followers to jockey for position. You see, that kind of like that deservedness or entitlement, that's a real battle in the Christian faith. 
Here's a man who gets his prayer answered. And up to this point, he has not followed Jesus. And these disciples have followed Jesus. <coughs> he hasn't stood with Jesus when others shouted at him or ridiculed him. He hasn't stood shoulder to shoulder with Jesus in Damascus or Jerusalem. And yet Jesus finds this Bartimaeus, and he finds him and heals him. So here's my thought, church. <coughs> Within all the busyness and crowds and hoopla of the Passover, Jesus still has his eyes on the broken. He still exudes grace and mercy. And do you need that? Do you need that here? I mean, the choice here is between those who have truly come to the end of themselves and those who throw themselves on the mercy of God and Bart's request was to have a real need met. The deepest need you and I could have, the deepest need you and I could have is that we need a Savior, that we need grace and mercy because God, the good news of this is that even through the hoopla of Passover, even Easter, is that God meets, really meets broken people right where they are. And he really meets people in need of a Savior. And just because it might be a busy week for many of us does not mean the Spirit of God is after those who are in need of mercy and grace from God. His eyes are still on the broken and hurting of this life. So will we, this Palm Sunday, will we openly and honestly reveal the darkness of sin and confront the truth about ourselves and each of us humbly submit our heart to the King? Will we, will, we, will we truly come to ourselves and say, you know what, I have not been living right, and I have come to my senses, I've come to the end of myself. And it's where our hearts pull and turn and have this gravitational pull that sometimes pervades our hearts. And yet, all of those who call upon Jesus, he will extend his hand of mercy and grace to them. This story is a reminder and a warning to those who may not think they need this message that power can kind of subtly come into our heart and to those who do not think that they need the hope of Jesus. Jesus is mercy and grace, and here's the kicker. <coughs> Excuse me, guys, sorry. <clears throat> here's the kicker. Jesus' mercy and grace extends to everybody and to those who think they don't need it <clears throat> and to those who do need it, to everybody. To everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord, according to Jesus, that they are saved. Everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord, they are saved. And could it be that with the story of Bartimaeus, could it be, church, that the folks who we think that least deserve faith or the folks that we may think in our lives are the furthest away from it are the ones that God's drawing to faith? I imagine for those disciples, they were probably like, man, Bart's probably the last guy to do this. Bart's the last guy to receive this. Imagine for all those crowds there and those disciples, can you imagine the moment? And I think all those times, and I think about this, the Spirit of God drawing people to himself, the people that we may think are the, like the last people to come to faith may be the people, because of the resurrection, has the power to resurrect anybody from the power of sin and death. And could it be that God has his eyes on the broken and hurting? We learn about this. We learn about Jesus. We learn about relationships. We learn about the world. We learn about Jesus as the Son of God who came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The call to follow Jesus, the call to follow him is a call to follow him, and that includes Jerusalem, and that includes the way of death and resurrection. The Son of God, placing our faith, he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and for you and for me. <clears throat> relationships. 
As we look at this, look at this story, genuine humility is always more impressive than fame. Having genuine humility is always more impressive than fame. As we look at this, even in our own heart, we have to think about, we have to look inwardly and say, are there relationships in my life Are there relationships in my life that have not gone the way that they wanted because of the sin that has pervaded my own life? Are there relationships that are not right because of what I have done, maybe the things that I have said? And we throw ourselves at the mercy and feet of Jesus and we repent. Genuine humility is always more impressive than fame. And when we look at the world around us, our hearts will always gravitationally pull toward the world. And the world says, you know, status and climbing up in the way of, of, of kind of getting it through this life is more and status and, and, and titles. And we ought to look to the way of Jesus. Look to the way of Jesus, not the way of the world. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So this Easter season, might we, church, give an honest look as to where we are where we may feel the world has caved in on us, might we have the humility to surrender to the king to make a way in our lives, to be led by the king in this season and by his standards. And I don't know what it is for you, but might we open ourselves to the honesty of the king who can in terrified times, when we're blinded by bitterness or blinded by sin, that always vulnerable confession is always more helpful. So might we, in this season, open ourselves, submit to the king, submit to his way, open our heart, open our life to him in every way possible. Powerful, praying for a powerful Easter week for you, and might we submit ourselves, might we throw ourselves on the feet of Jesus together. Amen? Amen. Um, John and Josh, Toman, if you come up here. Uh, Josh is going to play for us as we take communion together. But before we do the elements, I just want to pray, kind of walk us through it, that we need reminded, we are forgetful people at times, and we are forgetful of the price that Jesus paid for us. The body and blood of Jesus, we need reminded about this. And when Jesus did this, he walked down Palm Sunday, the hoopla and everything that that happened Palm Sunday, uh, the crowds were shouting. Maybe you're kind of feeling that in your heart a bit. You're like, man, life's kind of been back and forth. Man, it's like wavering, and my heart's not in the right place, and I'm here, but I've just got a lot of busyness in my life, a lot of noise, a lot of things that are happening. I've got my kids and my family and my neighbors kind of yelling at me, or, you know, just a lot of things in your heart. We take this time to remember to stop and remember what Jesus did on the last week of his life. He gave a portion of himself, the body and blood of Jesus, for you and for me. And so we take this as a time to remember all that he has done for us, and we throw ourselves at his mercy and throw ourselves at his grace because it's through him we are made whole. And it's by his stripes that we are healed. And we remember that this this Passover week the last week of Jesus's life. We remember that because he gave all that we could live forever. I'm going to pray, and if you would like to, Scripture says if, before you come, you, 
to examine yourself. And I just would like for you to pray. Um, kind of give about 30 seconds. We'll I'll kind of do about 30 seconds of silence for you to kind of pray to yourself. And um, I'll wrap it up there at the end. You can come down the middle. Uh, and then if you would like to exit kind of this way, um, and uh, we'd be glad to serve you communion. Let me pray for us.